Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. Today, we are chatting with Tara Whiten, a New York licensed veterinary technician and Florida certified veterinary technician who has spent the majority of her career in large animal medicine. She teaches full-time at the Veterinary Technology Program at Madai College in Buffalo, New York, and has many other experiences she will share, including her very impressive career with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, I have to tell you, that introduction is a little bit longer than I usually do, and, I, and as I was reading it, I was feeling like this is like promoting like an online dating profile for you. <laughs> Mara, I, I, it's like, I feel like I just talked about the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and then I should like... And Tara enjoys long walks on the beach, cooking Italian food, and plays tennis. (laughs) Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning. The focus of your career as a veterinary technician has been large animal medicine, which is uncommon for veterinary technicians. And so what I'm curious about is why did you devote your career to our big, bold guys of the profession? Well, to be honest, when I first uh, went to school to be a veterinary technician, I, I did think I was going into small animal. I thought it was I was going to go a very conventional route and wear scrubs and work in a clinic and work with dogs and cats. And, and I think I think what most technicians come in wanting to do, at least at, at the time I graduated. And uh, as I got further into my career in school, I realized I, I did a large animal internship and my what really drew me to the field was not so much the animal, which of course I love now, the animal grew on me, but the people. I uh, love agriculture. I think these folks aspire to a different way of life. It's very salt of the earth, with you will, if you will. And I enjoyed being with the people and working with their animals towards a a greater good, towards a larger goal. So, and it it really just seemed to fit the the my personality where where I was at in my life. And so are you saying that there was truly a personality difference between companion animal owners and large animal owners? Or are you saying more like a philosophy of life? Um, a little of both. A little of both. I um, The philosophy of life and is um, I was raised in a uh, family who owned restaurants. So we worked seven days a week and I've always worked seven days a week and you had Christmas and Thanksgiving off. And I so I was used to that. I wasn't used to, you know, weekends off and, and different things. So I was raised to people who work hard and people who are really devoted to what they do and uh, because it's their own business interest. And uh, what I found was people who who loved their animals, but in a different way than than I love my cats. I have cats and I have I also raise cattle and I I love the animal and respect the animal differently. 
you know, I don't know that I would have one of my cows curl up in my bed at <laughs> night, but my cats have, you know, carte blanche as far as space, bed space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you started your whole career at Springville Veterinary Services as a large animal tech, as, you, as we were talking about. But then you went to teach large animal labs at Madai College. So, so what was happening at that time to have you switch? Um, I was asked to come on board, and I, what really, what really, uh, I felt I felt was really important was when I was a technician going through school. Now this is twenty years ago. No one gave us a a option. You know, you were going to stand in a clinic and and work for a doc and and you know trim nails and and take TPRs and do preliminary physicals and and that's what you were going to do. And then when I kind of found my my niche with large animal and I was the first technician in New York State to be to work in large animal science. Um, because I did an internship and I then applied for a job and they actually told me, you know, we, we don't hire technicians. And after about two weeks, they called me back and said, you know, we liked what you did. And I mean, I did things, I did everything from, you know, I can dehorn calves and I can do the the physicals and I can get your blood work and do your, you know, your mastitis testing. I'll even wash your, you know, I even washed coveralls and stock trucks. And they were like, geez, we, we kind of like having this extra person around. Um, and I really felt like I, I went part-time to teach and stayed with Springville because I felt it was important to get the message out there that there are other avenues. And I don't think people, they, they weren't handy for me. I kind of had to find them. And as, as I went through school, I found technicians who were like, this just doesn't do it for me. You know, I, I just, you know, I'm into lab animal. I love research. I love, you know, wildlife, just different things. And I thought, well, I could really be an advocate for technicians out there, especially in the large animal field. Yeah. And, and so that's interesting because you brought, you bring up a lot of different avenues you can go, you know, um, lab animal and so forth, but what attracted you to the teaching? Cause you could have gone into industry, for example. Uh, the teaching was, I like the connection with the students. I like to be able to connect. I remember very vividly uh, my first injection, and it was on a on a little mouse, and it was in our lab animal, and and I had the little white lab coat on. I thought, oh, I'm all over this, and I and I probably put way too much alcohol, and the poor little thing was all wet. And I was ready to do my little sub Q injection, and all of a sudden, like this reality hit me, like I'm going to stick a needle through the skin of this living creature. And I kind of froze and I started to sweat and I didn't know. And I thought, who let me in this class? Are there no rules? <laughs> and, and that kind of, I really thought, you know, I needed more guidance and there, you know, and, and they, my program, which I graduated from a college in Buffalo where I'm teaching. And they gave me what I needed to get through that to, to realize, yes, you are the person for this, you know, and, and I thought I, I could do that. And I, and I wanted to do that for people coming through I, to this day. I still, that's my favorite part. I'm like, I've got you, you know, my favorite part is the students. It's, it's what they bring to the table, not if they can get blood every time or whatever, but that they feel good that they realize, yeah, you know, this is, it's, it's difficult, but you know, someone let me in here for a reason. I'm in this program for a reason. So that's what drew me to, to start assisting the labs. Mm-hmm. You mentioned like saying you are the person or, you know, I've got you. So there's this wonderful support system from, say, external people. What do you do to instill that in yourself that that you get the confidence to believe, yeah, I got this? 
You know, I spend a lot of time learning as long as I've been in the field. Um, I, I really, you know, I, I see, and I think we struggle in this field. We, we, uh, uh, as the older girls and I say girls, cause we're mostly girls, but girls and guys, um, we, you know, we're very critical of newbies because we're very insecure in ourselves. So if I'm insecure in something or, you know, I work on it, I do a lot of self-reflecting. I do a lot of learning. I do a lot of hanging around asking probably ridiculous questions. And if someone doesn't dig that, then that's, that's to me, that's on them. You know, it's like, okay, you know, let's, let's be brave enough to be bad at something. And, and I've, you know, I've, I've asked repeat questions to people. I'm sure my boss, who is still one of my best friends from Springville, you know, I've asked him questions. I should know cold. And then I've asked him questions that are so far out there. He's like, geez, I don't know. You know, I've only been a vet vet for 40 years. (laughs) So it's, you know, but I think you can't be afraid to to learn and to just reinforce your knowledge. And it, it gives you the confidence you need. Yeah, I love that. Let's be brave enough to be bad at this. That's yeah, brilliant. Because yes, you're vul- you're making yourself vulnerable and, and but but there's a such a reward for putting yourself out there. Oh, so much so. So much so. Absolutely. So it's 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 key to key to learning. And so you're humming along, you're teaching, you're you know, you're doing great and then bam, your like career took like a 180 or or maybe like a 90 degree turn. So so what happened? Tell us. Well, I'm rolling along and I had been working, um, spending a lot of volunteer time with different equine vets, learning different. We had uh, an equine surgeon in our area. So I had been spending time. She actually was the one who kind of pushed me um, to make the change. And I'd just been spending time just trying to learn how to run anesthesia better on horses and this and that. And, and you know, and people, my students say, well, I can't afford to do this. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, can I just ride with you? Can I just go with you? Can I just see this? You know, and, and you really do have to, you know, donating that time is such the reward is more than monetary. So uh, one of the vets that I worked with um, had become, she, she was getting, you know, as we all do, and that I have been pretty broken up over the years and have suffered some, some big injuries and starting to slow down. And she went to the Department of Agriculture. And she sent me, they were looking for a technician and she sent me the job posting. And what really tripped my trigger, and this was the Federal Department of Agriculture, was her slogan is keeping America's agriculture healthy. And I thought, you know, that's the bigger picture. I'm out here and I'm treating, you know, I'm working and I'm, I'm treating mastitis and I'm helping people with milk fever and I'm, you know, fixing lameness in horses. But the really big picture is that I can serve and I can do something for the humans and for agriculture on a bigger level is to join and, and you know, is to join the government and and work in that field. So that's what really turned turned me on to to what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And it's so um, cool that you said you mentioned the people, the love of what you can do for the people, not just the animals, yeah. which is. Not often, some people believe that, but, but it's often not verbalized. You know, we, yeah. we're all so used to saying, well, it's because I love the animals, but, but it sure yes. makes the job a whole lot better when you like the people too. It does. And I, and I tell my students constantly and my interns, you know, when they say, well, I, I do this because I don't like people. 
I'm like, well, who do you think owns these? Unless you're running through the woods, <laughs> catching wild <laughs> animals, <laughs> you know, and, and especially on the small, the small animal end, you know, these are people who are emotional and, you know, and so not in their finest state. And I, and, and I say that because I'm guilty of it. I bring my cats in, they're sick. I, I don't know anything about cat medicine and I'm freaking out. And, and one of my dear friends is their vet and she knows this. she knows what's, you know, she knows I'm going to come in, I'm going to be breathing into a paper bag because one of them looked at me funny and you know she gets and she likes to put her new technicians in with me most of them know me because I because I do teach they've had me at some point or another or seen me in different lectures and uh and that I'm emotional you know and because because you need to be able to put that somewhere I think and you need to be able to say okay this is what's happening and I need to deal with the person also so it's a good learning so let me be the learning experience I guess Right. And so I'm picturing like at the USDA, are there like all like every vet and tech who works for them is like has a broken nose, like missing an arm or, you know, like hoof marks on their head, yes, you know? Yes. We're, we're not hard to recognize because a lot of us, I, <laughs> but I always tell my students, you know, if, uh, if uh, you get injured in small animal, you know, we will send you flowers. If you get injured out here, you know, nobody's laughing. So, so we really do. It's a lot of folks who, um, who honestly, it is a lot of folks who have had suffered injuries because we don't do a lot of like preg checking or, or different stuff that's, that's really laborious. You know, when we get called out on, on outbreaks, of course, we, we then do stuff. But um, I worked with a guy who honestly broke uh, his, his palpation arm in three places and couldn't, and it had no feeling in his hand. So he's like, I can't help pay cattle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And none of us have small animal skills. And and we kind of regret that. You know, I, I never thought I would, but I'm like, geez, I, I could stand, you know, I've had some serious injuries and it's like, I could be pretty safe in a clinic somewhere. I don't think I'd love it as much, but, but I, I like I said, I, I would have to be the receptionist because I, I have no skills, you know, and I wouldn't want people relying on me for info in a small animal situation at all. So... <laughs> Oh, gosh. So you had this big change, and I feel like I need to go like, dun, dun, dun. I need like some dramatic music because it's like, Tara, you know, USDA, here she is. <laughs> what are you doing there? What I'm doing is um, it was wonderful. It was such a great experience and, and learning opportunity to travel. I traveled all over the country and keeping America's livestock healthy was our slogan. So we were working with different herds. We were working with uh, herds and, and mostly, you know, we were working with cattle and horses, of course, small ruminants and then chickens. And because chickens, no, chickens don't seem to have a category anywhere. So they kind of get lumped in with us. So we work with poultry, any production animal, really pigs. And we, I was learning the foreign animal diseases that the country's concerned with. I was learning, mm-hmm. um, you know, different how to how to prevent these. I was working at the borders. I was working um, at the the northern border. There's a, a lot of animals coming in from Canada, but the uh, we're not so much worried about the Canadian animals as we are animals that have come to Canada and that are, are then my, coming through. Um, I worked with J- out of JFK. They have the New York Animal Importation Center, or NIAC, and that's where anything coming from Europe comes through there. So a lot of animals, like the zoo animals, I remember one time we had the shipment of like 40 penguins, which are very mischievous, but they must spend 
time with us. So, so there's some, some really cool animals you get to see, um, but they've got to spend some time in quarantine. And, and so we're feeding them. We're watching them. I have worked with smuggled animals, smuggled cattle coming across the Mexican border where we've, we've had to round them up because they have different disease statuses uh, than we do. Tons of testing, of course, during my time with USDA was the, um, the mad cow or the bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So we did tons of testing. Of course, we had um, exotic Newcastle in birds. So we spent a lot of time in California. Uh, we had tuberculosis. We were in California, chronic wasting, um, different things that we're not so sure about. You know, ironically, um, the uh, 9-11 happened at that time. And, and that was, you know, a terrible, terrible thing that happened in the country. But what we learned and what we practiced for was an attack on our agriculture would have would have been horrific, you know, because we then become dependent on other countries for food and just getting ready for for what could be, you know, a, a foot and mouth or a mad cow disease or something done intentionally to our agriculture. Yeah. And I have a feeling a lot of us, I mean, this is, um, very eye-opening to me, just the amount of knowledge that you have to do this job right. And it, and it goes so far beyond just like the, you know, reading about it and, and studying it in books and, and so forth. I mean, you're really seeing it firsthand. You've got to know it, you know, yes. know this information back and front. Yeah. Incredible. Now, I, I, you know, talking about the USDA, it's really interesting. You really are a trailblazer, but not for reasons that our listeners may think, because you served as the Federal Service Tribal Liaison and worked with Native American tribes in New York. So how did you get involved with that? That was one of the most exciting parts of my career, because I kind of stumbled into it, because it made sense as I was doing disease surveillance and working borders and stuff like that. We have five federally recognized tribes here in New York state. And uh, it occurred to me that there's these huge holes. Like we get all this data and we do surveillance and we, we, of course, you know, they, they do funding to the state and the state people do surveillance and the environmental people in different colleges. And we're getting all this stuff. And I, and I think my statistics classes and, uh, there's been many of them and they've been boring. But what they taught me is you can you can make statistics whatever you want. And I remember looking at maps of New York State and thinking, oh, well, there's no rabies in this very long part from top to bottom. And I thought, well, that's stupid. What do rabbit animals get to some line? And they're like, no, thank you. You know, whatever. And then I realized they're not doing they're not surveilling these parts. They're not doing the surveillance there. I, I often question my students when I put up a picture of the country and I'll and I'll ask them, I'm like, oh, look, there's no rabies here or there's, you know, there, the, whatever disease we're looking at, there's oh, there's none over here. And, and, and I want them to recognize it's a lake or it's a middle of a, of a you know, these giant feedlots in the middle of the uh, what did I say out west. And I, you know, I want them to recognize that, yes, there's going to be tons of rabies along the East Coast. There's tons of human beings and tons of people testing for it. You know, so I, I want them to see that. And that kind of got me thinking about the tribes because I thought, well, there's these huge holes of missing data. And what I did was I asked my boss and my boss said, well, most states have a tribal liaison and they work with the tribes. And so I studied what I could do for them, how what, what my approach would be, because we do have a, a, a large tribe with a, uh, a large feedlot of cattle. And 
I said, well, I don't we want to know what's happening here? You know, and it, so I learned about it, about what I could do for them. And then I went to them and I had to learn about what they could do for me. And I had to learn about how the tribe functioned. I had to respect that. Um, what what I will say now is I don't call an Indian uh, territory a reservation anymore because I was told a reservation gives the connotation that you're taking it back. So they asked that I that I call it a territory, you know, and I, I learned an awful lot of things. Um, we at the federal level don't handle rabies, for instance, but there was a rabies exposure on the territory right where I live. Right. I live close, probably within 30 miles of one of the big Seneca Nation territories. And there was a rabies exposure. And I called them and I said, what can I do? And they said, well, you know, can you give rabies? Can we do a rabies clinic? And I said, well, I'm a technician in New York State. I cannot. And the federal level won't do that, but I will find a way. And I met with the state vet. I met with my boss. Long story short, we actually sent the state in to do it. We actually, I was there to assist them. Um, they did tell me I could sign, they were, they wanted people to sign the rabies certificate. And I said, no, no, I'm a technician. You know, you have to have the docs do it. And uh, I was told you're not in New York state anymore. <laughs> And, and truthfully, ah. you know, but I said, I'd rather, so their conservation officers signed the rabies certificates. They want their animals healthy and as do I. We're talking about humans and we're talking about doing things for the greater good. You also served as chair of the Civil Rights Committee for your division and you were actually presented the Administrator's Civil Rights Award for your work. Why were you involved in this committee? I think I might know the answer, but tell us. Well, I first was involved because you have to be. <laughs> so oh, okay. you start, and I think I served on the committee because it was either a safety committee or civil rights, and you get this choice of this, this, you know, this buffet of committees, and you think, okay, well, this sounds interesting. And I thought, well, this would be, you know, and I and I really thought I had a good handle on what was happening. And I thought, you know, this is good. And, and I understand this. So this will be something I'll do. And then the more I became involved in it, and then served as the and decided to serve as chair, um, the more I realized, I'm missing a lot. And I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I mean, I guess we all get involved in our own world. And Tara Whiten's world seems pretty great. And, you know, nothing's really bugging me. But there's worlds out there where things are really bugging people. And, and, you know, I met some of the most fabulous people doing that because it was people who did it, not because they had to, they just, it was their vibe. It was, you know, I've, I've been to Washington, you know, every time I was nominated, I went to Washington. Of course I went to Washington to went to receive the award. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was an honor to work with these people who were so passionate about, fairness and, and who taught me things and who weren't, you know, judgmental. If you used a wrong term or, or, you know, messed up, they weren't thinking, you know, well, you're this or you're that, you know, they, they, they were teaching me to, to learn about it because that's how we get people to understand it is to educate them and not yell at them, not have big internet fights and, you know, things like that. And, and, uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So that's what, and, and I saw the good it was really doing. Fantastic. Absolutely. Now you've changed things up again because you obtained a master's degree in deaf education from Canisius College in Buffalo. I mean, did you, Tara, did you just like wake up one day and go, hmm, I think I'm going to learn <laughs> sign language? Yeah. No, as much as it, as it seems like that would be it, because people often ask me, and it's so funny because they'll say, 
oh, you know, how do cows and, and deaf education even roll together? Um, and at one point in my life, when I was teaching at GCC, uh, the sign language instructor turned out to be from South Africa. And she actually came here to learn farming and to learn agriculture. She's a deaf woman. And she came here because in South Africa, they treat their deaf community very differently than we do here. And um, they kind of kind of sequester them to their own little village and, and they have to be, you know, self-sustaining. And that's what she wanted to do. So she invited me on on the University of Pretoria's dime to come to South Africa to teach about agriculture and animal health. And I, so I always tell everybody, well, that's where it came together, you know, because everybody always wants this big answer. But um, I actually come from a deaf family. So I sign. And that was part of, you know, what I, what, just how we grew up. My uncles were deaf. So I thought I would try. And um, so when I actually, when I retired that year and started to teach back, I actually went into the master's program because I thought, well, I, I'd like a master's in, or I'd like a degree in teaching. Of course, I was qualified to go into the master's program. Um, but I thought how unique that there is a deaf education uh, and, you know, to work with deaf and hard of hearing students. And I thought, well, and that seems to be right up my alley, because, again, it's it's people. It's people who I thought, geez, you know, they they you know, you go through these periods in your life. And I thought, well, they need me. Well, it turns out they didn't need me. I needed them. So it was really awesome. It was oh. a fantastic. My graduate program was a fantastic two years of my life. And I I used because I, I had to certify as a mainstream teacher as well as a certified deaf a teacher of the deaf. So I got to use my teaching skills and in both venues. And I was using them. I was teaching at Madai College. And it was funny because I remember like there there'd be names for things. And I'm like, oh, I'm already doing that. I didn't know there was a name for it, you know, but it was just something that just seemed like the normal thing to do, you know, like, it's like, okay, it's telling you to be kind and respect your students. Well, shouldn't everybody do that? You know, but of course we've all had professors that maybe didn't read that part. <laughs> so it, yeah, yeah, it was, it, so it really worked out. I was doing both at the same time and it was really, uh, it really worked out well. What else were you able to carry from the deaf education, uh, learnings and schoolings that you had to your other avenues of education? You know, what I really learned was, and it's the tagline on my email, and if you've received an email from me, you know it says, um, if a child can't learn the way we teach, maybe we should teach the way they learn. What advice would you pass on to new graduates or those in the early stages of their career in veterinary medicine? Like, what do you know that would be helpful for us to know? I think what I know... And, and I think as I, as I look back on, on what you and I have talked about, it's, it's the learning. Never stop learning. Never, never stop learning because you never know. You know, you, know, you, you never know. Networking is important and learning and, and being places. I just had a student ask me, I'm going to the, the, the conference here in Orlando this week. What should I wear? And another student's like, just sweatpants. I'm like, I don't. I'm like, don't, you know, dress and, and you never know who you're going to meet and who you're going to, you know, and, and be on your, you know, your best behavior. And that behavior really has to be part of your life. You know, you have to be a professional and you have to be kind and, and it shows. So, you know, and, and just really keep your eyes open for opportunities and, and opportunities to learn. It all circles back to let's be brave enough 
to be bad at this. Yes. You know, take the chance and learn. We are definitely running out of time. I don't know where it goes. I'm having such a fun time with you and I'm feeling so enlightened. So thank you. Well, thank you, Tara, so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was a delight. Thanks so much, Kim. It was wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, this concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com because we'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat.